Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Lakshmi Mendes, and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. This week, I'm joined by a fantastic panel of speech and language therapists who are in the studio with us to discuss their research around communication training for people with language-led dementia or primary progressive aphasia. Now, you may already be aware that speech and language therapists provide treatment, support and care for people who have difficulties with communication or with eating, drinking and swallowing. However, if like me, until very recently, you had no idea of the range of therapeutic interventions speech and language therapists can offer to people living with dementia at all stages of the disease process, then you're definitely listening to the right podcast. This week, I'm joined by Rosemary Townsend. Hi. A specialist speech and language therapist and chief executive of Discover, aphasia support charity in Leatherhead, Surrey who voluntarily went on a three-day silent retreat. Not an easy task for a speech therapist, I'm sure. And next, we have Oliver Sawyer. Hello. A student speech and language therapist at the University College London. Ollie enjoys making sourdough in his spare time and spending time at the Lido in the sun. And last, but definitely not least, we have a regular contributor and blogger for the Dementia Researcher website, Anna Volkmer. Hi there. Anna is a NIHR doctoral research fellow and speech and language therapist, also at University College London. She's going to be a natural at this because she did some voiceover work when she was five. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome all. Um, As I mentioned earlier, our panelists have a research interest in language-led dementia or primary progressive aphasia. But before we get stuck into the research, maybe we can get to know our panelists a little bit better. So you already know some fun facts about them, but could each of you share a little bit more about yourself and why you chose to work in dementia? Of course. Um, So my name is Anna Volkmar. I'm a speech and language therapist by background. And I became particularly interested in working with dementia when I was working clinically um, because I found that many other speech therapists and many other health professionals didn't know about the range of interventions we could offer. And I felt quite passionately that this was a group that we could really support and um, work with to live independently for longer by working on their communication. Um, That's also what motivated me to apply for some research funding with the National Institute for Health Research. So I'm currently funded by a doctoral research fellowship um, and I'm running the project called Better Conversations with um, Primary Progressive Aphasia, or BCPPA for short, nice mm-hmm. acronym. Um, the uh, yes, indeed. Um, which is how I um, then, uh, I guess, drew Rosemary into working, convinced her, twisted her arm into helping me on that route. And also um, Ollie, who is one of our students, is um, working with us on the project too. Perfect. Um, so, Rosemary, if we go to you then, um, well, Anna says she's to twist your arm, but I'm sure 
This is something that you were, were you already working on, had an yeah. interest in? Yeah, yeah. I'm a clinician and have been for many years. Actually, I've been a clinician for about 30 years, which makes me sound very, very elderly. <laughs> but actually, I think I just got going with my career very early. That's my excuse anyway. Yeah. Um, but I've had a, a, a long term interest in aphasia and it was that mutual interest that really um, uh, brought Anna and myself together. Um, in the, the charity Discover that I, I work for, um, we're specialising in group support for people with chronic aphasia. Um, and although we support people with aphasia caused by stroke, um, in the last five or six years, I've developed an interest in this um, dementia-related aphasia. Um, and through that, I've come to know Anna and be involved in her mm -hmm. steering group for her PhD, which has been great. I think I worked out the other right. day that um, Rosemary and I have been kind of interacting with each other at meetings and conferences on the phone for about six years, I mm. think it might mm -hmm. be, yeah. five Probably. or six years yep. at least, yeah. Strong collaboration there then. Mm. <laughs> and Ollie, how did you get started in sort of this area and involved with the project? So I am a student speech and language therapist, as we said before here mm -hmm. at UCL. Um, I have had not quite as much research experience as these two wonderful panellists, <laughs> but I have a background in working with um, patients with neurological conditions um, and spent uh, quite a bit of time working with patients with progressive conditions, um, which kind of sparked an interest in, you know, what the role of speech and language therapy is, working with people with um, dementia, for example. Um, as part of our MSc uh, in speech and language therapy at UCL, we um, are to complete a research project right. and Anna's uh, luckily came up for our year. Um, so myself and three other students on the um, speech therapy training programme are working with Anna and the BCPPA team. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And do you think you continue with research then? <laughs> I'd like or to think so. I'd like nice. to dip my toe clinically, nice. a bit of yeah. research and see see where things go. Clinical yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. <laughs> awesome. So maybe we can get stuck into a little bit more about your research now because that sounds really interesting. But before we start, maybe Rosemary, can you start us off by explaining what primary progressive aphasia is for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with the with this neurological condition? Yeah, yeah certainly. Um, it's unfortunate, I think, that speech and language therapy is full of terms which need a lot of explanation. Mm. Um, it's, it's a real shame, but um, not many people even know what aphasia is. So let's take one bit at a time. Um, aphasia is an acquired language problem, a problem that's caused by damage to the language processing parts of the brain. And it can um, result in difficulties with um, uh, understanding language, which includes reading, uh, understanding what you read, understanding what you hear, and encoding what you want to say. So you'll have an idea in your head, but you can't put it into words and sentences necessarily. Um, and aphasia is um, probably most commonly caused by stroke, but um, we're here to talk about a progressive um, type of aphasia, um, which is um, a form of um, dementia, frontotemporal lobe dementia. So in this condition, the parts of the brain which are involved in processing language are affected by abnormal proteins being deposited in that area. And so the result is a progressive language loss over time. Um, and the reason it's called primary 
progressive aphasia is that the language is leading the dementia. People often think of dementia as being memory uh, problems, and there are obviously types of dementia which fit into that kind of pattern, but this is a language-led dementia. Right. It's really interesting to hear about as well, like you said. Um, Is it how... Is it a rare condition or how? Yes, it is a rare condition. It's one of the rare dementias. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there are subcategories of um, PPA. Right. Um, it's a condition which there's been a great deal of research into in, in recent years and therefore there's much more understanding of the different types of variant that can exist. And that really helps us as clinicians and as researchers because it helps us to specify what we can do to help people mm. with the condition. Yeah. yeah and interestingly, I would add that actually those those variants um, that we that Rosemary ju- was just explaining about are often quite hard to differentially diagnose. So yeah, often a speech and language therapist might be involved with um, supporting the differential diagnosis between those different types as mm. they present mm. with differing language profiles, if you will, um, across those three variants. Great. Um, And so obviously speech and language therapists then they play a role in diagnosing the disease. But um, how do you how do you work with people living with PPA then? Maybe Oli, I know you're just getting started with this. It's, um, it's really interesting, and as as Rosemary touched on um, just then, uh, people with PPA um, do present with a history of slowly uh, worsening communication over time. Right. It is a progressive uh, condition, um, so that means that uh, people with PPA um, may struggle with their family life, with their social relationships, with work. Of course. Um, so speech and language therapists play quite a uh, or have a broad role across the disease process from the very start to um, throughout the the condition. Um, As I said, it can be quite broad. You can work on um, lots of different things, such as more traditional impairment type um, approaches that can Mm. look at word relearning Mm. and um, Whereas you can also look at things which are more functional, like right. day-to-day tasks, such as having a conversation yeah. or ordering a coffee when mm. you go out to a cafe with your friends and family. Um, so it can really touch on Quite so many different areas. Role. Definitely, yeah. Nice. Well, I think that leads nicely into your research then as well, because you're looking at one specific intervention, if I'm right. Um, so maybe we can start off with... with kind of really honing in on what the primary question of the research that you're doing uh, with this project is. Yeah. And Anna, maybe you can start us off because you're, you're kind of key um, in talking about this project. Absolutely. So communication training is an intervention that Ollie mentioned just now. Is an, It's a commonly used um, therapeutic intervention by mm. speech and language therapists um, across... Uh, different uh, caseloads. So we we use this um, approach working with people with stroke-related aphasia quite commonly. And actually, it's one of the most commonly used approaches with um, used by speech and language therapists working with language-led dementia or PPA. However, it's an area where there is very, very little research. So evidence. So there's very little research evidence of the effectiveness of this. Yet clinically, we feel, I guess, from our knowledge-based practice, that this is an effective intervention for people with PPA. So my research project, I've developed and refined a communication training programme that had been originally designed for people with 
um, stroke-related aphasia called Better Conversations with Aphasia. And I've refined it with input from people with PPA and their families and input from speech and language therapists. And we've used, looked at the current research literature that there is around interventions for people with PPA and, um, and a UK-wide survey from speech therapists. And we've gathered all that information together to refine the programme. Um, and we're now actually piloting it across seven NHS trusts um, to see essentially whether it's feasible to deliver this type of intervention. So we've developed this programme as a free online uh, resource for speech therapists okay. to download and then use in training the their people with PPA and their partners. And we've developed four therapy sessions. And what we want to know is whether it is feasible to deliver it um, across four therapy sessions. Is it acceptable for families and, and uh, people with PPA? Is it something that they feel is useful and, and develops their understanding and their communication? Um, and then we're, at, we, of course, as a pilot study, we're also looking at the most sensitive and useful primary outcome measure, want to monitor recruitment and retention with the idea of actually um, running a full trial to examine its effectiveness in the future. Perfect. Um, and maybe, so I'm, I'm not that familiar um, with any of the work that you do as a speech and language therapist. Um, so could you just define quickly what communication training is? a very good question <laughs> so essentially um, in the communication training program we've de developed we um, support people to identify what the barriers and facilitators are in their conversations so what are things that make conversation go well right. so for example that could be the partner giving the person with PPA a bit more time to generate some words and what are the things that are perhaps barriers so sometimes barriers can be um, especially in the partner one of the most common barriers that a partner can use is something that we call a test question where they ask them a test a question that is essentially a test where both people know the answer and that's often a question that changes the balance or the power in a conversation it's typically the kind of question that you would use in a teacher-student relationship right. or a, um, a doctor-patient relationship not in a partnership um, yeah. relationship so often we will look at the balance of that conversation we'll look at how topics are chosen whether they're finished we'll look at whether um, turn-taking is happening or interruptions are happening. We look at things like errors and conversation breakdown, how that's repaired, and identify which are um, part of their routine conversational style and which ones we can work with, set strategies with, and actually um, practice the facilitators more. The idea is that if you do more of the things that facilitate and keep a conversation going, um, the 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 easier it is to have a, a balanced conversation. So we actually practice those with them um, in the intervention as well. Great. Um, no, that sounds really great. And so how do you think, or why do you think communication training is particularly helpful for people living with primary progressive aphasia? I know you're sort of trialling this at the moment, um, but do you have any thoughts around it? So maybe we can go to... Yeah. Any of our panelists? <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Ellie. Um, 
What have I taught you? <laughs> <laughs> so I've been part of the BCPPA project for um, properly, uh, maybe for a couple of months yeah. uh, now. So it's very early on. <laughs> so I might have to share this uh, question with Anna. Super. Anna, um, do you want to lead? <laughs> I can if you like. Um, so essentially, I think that when I've been working with people with um, primary progressive aphasia or PPA clinically, they will often find it very frustrating to work on impairment-based tasks. So, and that's where the majority of the research literature is in this area. So tasks such as uh, practicing word lists um, every day, like a drill, can be very, very um, difficult because you have to do them every, every, every single day and yet you're not necessarily going to improve that. You may only maintain those words and as soon as you um, stop practicing them, that will deteriorate. Um, and actually, it doesn't necessarily have an impact on functional... I mean, Ollie was alluding, well, mm. describing the kind of functional conversations you might have with your partner in a coffee shop. Yeah. doesn't focus on real-life conversations. So often patients and people with PPA come to us asking for help with actual conversations and yeah. right. um, the other thing is that partners want to know what they should be doing and I think one of the great things about communication training approaches is that they demonstrate that communication happens in the space between two people it's not the person with PPA's responsibility yeah. to participate in that conversation and keep it going it's actually something uh, that both people in that conversation have to participate in so then we're as part of the training you're sort of working with you know carers families partners to assist with sort of delivering that training then for the people living with ppa is Indeed. that correct yeah yeah i mean in my clinical experience i'd say that um it's one of the most effective ways you can help someone with ppa because this yeah. is a progressive condition uh their language ability is going to be mm. declining over time and one thing you can do that really makes a difference is to equip the partner with an understanding of mm. communication strategies. Right. And, and, and the, you know, I always say a good partner gets you a long way. It's a bit like yeah. Strictly when you have a rubbish yeah, dancer yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the pro comes along and all of a sudden they're dancing. Yeah. Exactly. And, and conversation's a bit like that. Right. And you can really enjoy the moment yeah. if, you know, you've got somebody leading you. Of course. Um, and, and, and conversation is, yeah. conversation is, is uh, again, it's like the glue of relationships. Yeah. It's, what, it's what holds you together. Um, even if there's not many words, you can still have conversation. Yeah. I was just going to give an example of yeah. somebody I work with where the person with PPA, um, he was trying to say he had a type of PPA that meant it was very difficult to find words. And right. his partner said that she felt he'd stop listening to her. Oh, okay. And he That's said that he didn't realise that she felt like that because he was so spending so much time trying to find the words right. that that they realised they'd stopped having, having that a given relationship. Take, right? like and he said to her, why don't you help me find the words? And she said, well, I didn't know you even wanted me to help. Right. And they'd not actually had that conversation about what strategies they wanted one another to use and their opinions mm. about their, one another and their relationship had suffered as a consequence. Yeah. And um, so that really feeds into that lovely metaphor of using stri strictly. Yeah. You know, yeah. I do think, it's you know, great. conversation is like a dance or a, or a tennis game. Mm. You yeah. need mm -hmm. the more skilled the opponent, the actually the better you are as well mm. in that, in that mm. 
and, and the more confident you can be. I yeah. think confidence yeah. plays a massive part in in uh, in conversation when you have a phase. If you feel you can, and you've got a partner who's yeah. accepting and supportive, then you know you can go a long way. Definitely. Um, so, as part of your project, then. Um, I guess because it's a pilot as well, you, and you mentioned that you're, you know, kind of getting your feedback from other speech and language therapists, but also people living with PPA who mm. were part of your pilots then. Um, and obviously then partners, family members, carers, that kind of thing as well. Um, is there is there any way in particular that you're involving them or is it just a conversation after you know, I guess, delivering the training itself or at, at which stage when you're sort of designing the project would you start approaching these people? Well, I, I can speak from being on Anna's steering yeah. group um, as as a speech and language therapist. And in fact, we've just come from a meeting today, right. um, which has included um, couples who are living with, with PPA, um, a psychologist um, as well, and... Um, and that's been, I think, what appealed to me about Anna's research is it was really practical and really mm-hmm. inclusive. And I'm sure many people doing research don't take, you know, don't don't consult with people in the way mm. she is. Yeah. She's really taking time to ask people to help structure the programme that she's actually designing. And I think that's really going to pay dividends when it comes to being used by it. therapists. Definitely. Um, and prior to the um, this stage of the project, Anna did a lot of research across the country to find out what speech and language therapists were doing. And there's a great need for this kind of um, just, you know, a, a programme that people can, can um, access and feel confident in using um, because it's a rare condition. Therapists don't come across it often yeah they need this kind of support to help Definitely. them get underway yeah no sounds like it's a great resource in the making um how long has the pilot been running for so the pilot itself um opened in november late november last year and we've had um we've actually had two sets of um students helping us on okay. that project so the other avenue we're using is um, I'm involving student speech and language therapists, as Ollie mm. mentioned, um, he and three other students, so four of them from the current cohort, four from the previous cohort, are um, helping in collecting the outcome measures after the um, participants have uh, done the intervention with the right. local speech therapist in the NHS trusts. So we're trying to involve speech and language therapists who are both students, who are clinically practising. We're trying to co-develop resources with people with PPA and their families um, and we're also um, I, w- I have been able to consult with organisations such as the Rare Dementia Support Group so the okay. PPA yeah. um, support group which is hosted um, here well at, at UCH and um, at the Wellcome Trust as well by people like Chris Hardy who's another dementia researcher yeah. Um, and they've been able to contribute right from the get-go when I was writing the grant um, to apply to the NHR for funding. They contributed to the development of the the idea, the methodology, and then right through to now we've had um, people contributing and co-developing actually some of our consent forms um, and some of the handouts we use in the intervention, things like choosing the right images. Yeah. Which, mm. you know, Ollie knows from working clinically, yeah. mm. 
everybody uh, images are quite subjective and yeah. what we think as clinicians is a great image absolutely yeah it's very challenging it's really difficult to choose that kind of material so it's been really useful having that absolutely. interaction Feedback. yeah great and um, how, how long are you running the pilot for? So you said you started last November. When are you hoping to sort of, you know, get the first, I guess, you know, all of the results in by and You're start looking at that? So the um, idea is that the study is open until, essentially till June 2019. Okay. Um, have and you taken a peek already? Do you have some interim results that no, you can share? No, of course share? not. Of course we not. haven't. We are ethical <laughs> researchers. Um, what I ca what I can say is that um, I guess there are, we've had positive reactions yeah. from both speech and language therapists and from the um, people with PPA and their families. People have generally been very interested in um, participating in. Right research that is focused on an intervention that is focused on speech and language therapy mm -hmm. for people with PPA. There are very, very few um, intervention studies or research mm -hmm. that's done by speech and language therapists that is, that is I guess, focused on interventions. Um, and people are really interested in participating in that as well. So, that, so it's generally, I've been very positive, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's good to hear that the feedback has been, yeah, positive generally. Yeah. I think that, you know, the, the key thing is to get it out there that speech and language mm. therapy is valuable Definitely, in yeah. primary progressive aphasia. I think too many people tend to discount it and think, well, communication's deteriorating, why mm. bother? Right. Um, but in fact, PPA is quite a slowly progressive condition often. Okay. And if you think of the number of conversations you have day to day, isn't exactly. it worth doing something? Definitely. Um, I mean, the, the way I've worked slightly differently at Discover, we, we work with a similar conversation therapy model to Anna, but in groups. So mm. we're in introducing people relatives and people with a diagnosis to one another, which is incredibly helpful because people feel much less alone. Mm. Indeed. And although it's a slowly progressing condition, I think I've had comments from um, other health professionals yeah. um, who, I won't name the disciplines, yeah. who've stated things such as, well, what's the point? Right. Um, especially when people are in the more moderate to severe stages, mm. surely you can't do anything, so why bother? And actually, I think it's really, really worthwhile because as we've highlighted here today it's not just about um supporting the person with ppa themselves it's supporting their communication partners developing their environment and actually even in the most profound stages mm. of dementia not even just language-led dementias there are um strategies and um potential interactions that can be enhanced mm. Mm. Um, by speech and language therapy yeah, professionals yeah. and there are communication aids both high and low tech that um, are developing and it, this is an always developing area. Yeah. And I think that um, there are always some ideas and options that we may be able to explore mm -hmm. in those mm -hmm. settings. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and what would you say to other people out there who are sort of living with PPA, you know, looking for some kind of help? Um, obviously one of the 
first points of call would be their local speech and language therapist. Um, but are there any other resources they can sort of access more information? And I guess, you know, if you're part of a family with someone living with PPA as well, as we've discussed, it's so important to be aware of sort of what's happening. Um, so maybe you can highlight some resources for us so mm-hmm. people can go and check out. I guess the first thing to say is that um, generally medical professionals, in general, medical professionals are the gatekeepers to our service. There is some geographical variation, so in some areas in the UK you can self-refer to speech and language therapy, but um, otherwise I would say go and see your GP, your neurologist, your psychiatrist, your gerontologist and ask them to refer you to speech and language therapy. That said, not all speech and language therapy services have the provisions uh, to deliver um, lots of support in the community. So it may be that people need to choose to look for other avenues to get seeking support. And there are many um, avenues that come to my mind that are perhaps outside of the classic NHS structure, such as the organisation that Rosemary works for, um, Discover. Discover. Yeah. Yeah. Although we are local to the South East, I have to say. Right. Mm. Um, And do you have any sort of sister organisations? Or similar we don't, organisations, um, but we are, we, we're a small charity, but we have quite big ambitions. Yeah, um, and uh, we've recently done a piece of outreach, um, taking our PPA course uh, into Hampshire, Perfect. which was um, which was very helpful. And um, you know, my my wish is that more speech and language therapists adopt this approach. It's not rocket science. Yeah, and I think Anna's research um, and designing this this um, intervention hopefully will achieve that because people will be able to pick it up and feel confident using it. Perfect and so we've just to finish off we've touched a little bit on this um, with your advice as well to other speech and language therapists Um, but what would each of you say um, to other speech and language therapists I guess coming into more a research aspect of things so crossing over into research and you know crossing that bit of divide that you sometimes see yeah Ollie maybe you're perfectly (laughs) perfectly I think it's a really exciting time to be a speech and language therapist and a trainee speech and language therapist Um, I think there's so many doors that are opening for people who maybe want to know more or want to investigate more wanting to pursue research that it actually is achievable and that mm. you can do it and you can approach people to discuss your ideas. Um, I think a key t- takeaway so far to our training is that, you know, clinical work is what we're trained to do, but we're also trained to look at the research and to um, say, you know, look, you can go into do things like what Anna's mm-hmm. doing, go into a PhD route, do uh, research at master's level, and it's really exciting mm-hmm. um, to think that it's, you know, clinical work, it isn't the only thing that you mm. will ever do as yeah, a speech and language therapist, that, you know, at any, at any point you can come into research and mm. you know, yeah, explore your interests. I think yeah. you're right, Ollie. I think in years past it was an either-or decision, mm-hmm. and now... There's even a Twitter hashtag, isn't there? There is. It's ClinAC um, SLTs, so Clinical right. Academic SLTs. And I think actually that um, 
historically speech and language therapists have and I certainly would lay say the same I have mm. felt that I wasn't academic enough yeah. to do right. research yeah. that I wasn't clever mm -hmm. enough to do research mm -hmm. that's that researchers are actually these super duper um you know serious people um, I think I spoke about this on the last podcast right. I did, um, which is around imposter syndrome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I sometimes think that I'm a complete imposter. But most clinicians perhaps feel like this a little bit when they're thinking about research. Actually, I think speech and language therapists are have many skills yeah. that make them and really it's a useful. Practical aspect that indeed. you bring to sort mm. of the research mm. that you're con you know conducting as well. Absolutely. And like you said, this is sort of a tangible intervention for someone living yeah. with a condition so really, I think sorry I totally interrupted you no. but we're really uh, we're trained to be good communicators yeah. actually in research one of the key skills is communication it's networking with people it's communicating yeah. with participants it's um, finding the person who can help you with your stats because actually you don't have to be good at stats <laughs> you just have to know someone who is <laughs> and and know how, like how to find someone who can help you apply the theory yeah. actually good communication and enthusiasm endurance i think they're mm. the things being able to set goals and break goals down into smaller goals that see you through some of these mammoth you know doing a phd seemed so mammoth when i yeah. started but actually clinician speech and language therapists constantly having to goal set with children or adults and we are trained to set these long-term goals, mid-term goals and short-term goals and make them measurable and achievable and realistic. Yeah. And um, and actually, that's what you do in research. Mm. So I think there's Definitely. heaps of skills we can carry over. Mm. I think more, more speech therapists to do research. It's super <laughs> exciting. It is. Well, that sounds great. And our, our time's just sadly drawing to a close. We'll have to wrap up this podcast. Um, so just to sum up a few key points I think that we've learned today, definitely learned what primary progressive aphasia is. It's a neurological syndrome in which your language capabilities become slowly or progressively impaired. Um, and unlike other forms of aphasia, um, which are more common, that can result from a stroke or injury, um, PPA is caused by you know, neuro neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's or frontotemporal lobe mm -hmm. dementia. Um, we've heard about the role that speech and language therapists play in di helping diagnose um, this kind of aphasia, but also the broad range of therapeutic interventions um, that they can offer to people living with dementia, PPA, but dementia in particular, like at different stages of the disease. Um, and finally, I think we've, it's great to hear that, you know, there are some tangible sort of um, strategies um, where people can feel more confident in these conversations that they're having. Um, and it's great to see such enthusiastic speech and language therapists <laughs> um, who are clearly making a difference. Um, so with that, I'd like to thank our panelists, Anna, Ollie and Rosemary, for taking time out of their busy schedules. Um, to share their research with us today. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, and listeners, don't forget to visit our website to check out the profile of our panellists. And they've, they're all happy to interact with you on Twitter. Maybe you can quickly um, share with us each of your Twitter handles. Yeah. yeah Mine's at Oliver Sawyer SLT. Mine is at Volkmer, V-O-L-K-M-E-R, underscore Anna. And mine's at Rosemary Towns 15 
Um, and there's also a Twitter um, account for Discover. It's spelled D-Y-S-C-O-V-E-R. And definitely check out um, the other hashtag as well, Clint A C S L T. Great. And as always, you can post any questions um, in our comments section um, or in our forum on the Dementia Researcher website. So that's dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. Drop us a line um, on Twitter. That's at dem underscore researcher or use our hashtag ECRDementia. You can also check out uh, the blogs on our site, especially the ones Anna's written about Mm -hmm. her work and her experience as an early career researcher. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes. Tell your friends and colleagues about Dementia Researcher. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.